guys. Welcome back to Between Sessions. My name is Ebony Harris. And I'm Elisa Bokeen. And we are two brown chicks changing the face of therapy on both sides of the couch. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are back. Um, if you were on Facebook and saw this amazing episode but did not hear anything we said, <laughs> we are recording the audio uh, for you with Tierney Thurmond. We're going to talk about racial battle fatigue. Um, we had some uh, technological issues, and but the conversation was just too good not to like re-record. So we wanted to make sure that we had an opportunity to really talk to Tierney and learn um, about racial battle fatigue and make sure that everybody else was able to kind of get that knowledge. So um, we're going to start like we always do, Tierney. If you could tell us a little bit about your practice, what you do, and how you got into mental health. Absolutely. So I own and operate um, Edo2 Counseling and Consulting, and we're based out of Baltimore, Maryland. I actually got into um, counseling because I was a young girl. Well, I'm the oldest of four children, but as a young girl, I was somewhat the, the one that my um, friends and family relied upon to provide you know, support and counseling too. So what was um, really intriguing about it is that as I matured, I uh, my mother was was later diagnosed with um, a mental illness. And I thought, I want to be the practitioner that my mother was searching for when I was when I was younger. And so um, so I tried this course to become this therapist. But in addition to that, I was working in higher education. And I saw the great overlap in both of these worlds of um, higher ed and diversity work in addition to mental health counseling and um, holistic wellness. So Consist, uh, continued to work in higher ed, got, became licensed, um, began to work with students. And so my, I call my, my day job, quote unquote, is I'm a college administrator focusing on equity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. So I do a lot of training and development with faculty and staff on how we create culturally responsive classrooms. Um, how do we assist with minimizing and dismantling? dismantling racism and um and then that's also obviously apparent in how we work as as therapists so my two worlds have somewhat come together in higher ed and diversity and inclusion and um this mental this mental wellness as well that is so impressive <laughs> and <laughs> highlights why we had to have you come back perfect i'm excited to be back it's 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 good to be able to have the conversation again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, no, and it, it's interesting. I think that, you know, we all have different experiences that have brought us to mental health. And so even, you know, that you were able to kind of combine your two, two worlds is very cool. Um, so talk to us about racial battle fatigue. What is it? Yeah. So the the, to- the term racial battle fatigue was actually co- um, coined in the early 2000s. and um, what we were beginning to see, at least on college campuses, particularly began to pay a lot of attention to black boys and how they presented on, on predominantly white campuses. And so when these studies were beginning to be um, conducted with young black men, it was these things such as comments about my hair, comments about my, my statue. Are you here as an affirmative action case? Are you here for this? Are you here for that? And so, um, we begin to see that this coin kind of come up, come out of that research, and it was racial battle fatigue, which is essentially the 
the physiological, sociological, and the the psychological impact that racism has on people. So it's essentially the burden and the, the fatigue that's associated with combating racism or racist ideologies or racist practices um, on the on the backs of people of color so it it presents itself in such as like these microaggressions that happen on a regular basis whether it's a woman of color um someone commenting on her hair or wanting to touch her hair or um or even the heavy burden the emotional burden that many of us may carry when we we talk about issues as it pertains to immigration and the lack of immigration regulation in america and but children of color being treated so unfairly and being put in cages or black boys being shot and killed by police and the burdens that we as people of color carry associated with those with those racist practices so when i um it's funny because even as i'm talking about this my body has begun to slump over like because the burden can sometimes be so heavy and um there's this this quote that we use sometimes in our work it's the the death by uh, uh, 10,000 slashes, which is essentially what microaggressions, microassaultive and microinsultive um, behavior does to you. Um, sometimes people say things like, oh, well, I don't think it was that big of a deal or they're not racist. They didn't mean it that way. But as people of color, we are incredibly sensitive to um, comments and behaviors that seem to attack or disenfranchise our humanity. So again, racial battle fatigue is essentially how we psychologically and physiologically respond to, to race, to racism. So that in the and us having to consistently combat it. Mm. So that's where the that's where the battle piece comes in and the mm. fatigue associated with having to having to battle it on a regular basis. Right. Yes. And, and, you know, I think this is what, you know, what was so interesting to me the first time that we spoke, it's putting the, putting the language to it. It's something that, you know, as women of color that we know we're dealing with on a daily basis, um, even, you know, as clinicians, you know, we have our clients coming in and, and they're showing up with, with the different symptoms and, you know, but even just as clinicians also how we have to care for ourselves as well because of how much all of this is just impacting us collectively and then to have someone put you know put the words to it like that just yes it is battle fatigue it is exhausting I'm slumped over too like like, while we're we're speaking I just feel so heavy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah. So how does this show up? So I heard you talk about, you know, microaggressions and micro insults. Um, how does this show up with clients? Like if we're working with clients, when can we be like, okay, this is racial battle fatigue? Right. So it shows it shows up in a multitude of ways. Many times you'll have clients who um who are, will come in and they are they're telling a long thread of stories about maybe a supervisor or community and, and a community event that exposed them to just these, these one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten encounters. Mm-hmm. So something such as um, uh, the me having to reread the email because I don't want them to think that I'm incompetent and my incompetence is linked to my race, or um, the the commentary about you know wanting to wanting to be on time because you don't want to live up to the to the stereotype threat and that's something too that goes hand in hand with with racial battle fatigue. Many times people will come in thinking like 
I've particularly women, I've worked so hard. Like I, I did everything quote unquote right. I went to school. I got my graduate degree. I'm even pursuing advanced credentials. I'm intelligent. I, I've worked so hard. Why am I encountering this? Why is my competence and my intellect being quite nothing to do is that they're being questioned because they are a person of color and we know that racism is pervasive um how it also shows up in clients many times is that they are talking about like my head is hurting i'm feeling anxiety my stomach is hurting and they don't always know how to pinpoint mm -hmm. like w what is triggering these encounters what is what is making me feel uneasy? Um, I'll even share just a personal story. I remember at a previous um, job that I was working at, I would wake up in the morning and I would literally feel like I could not breathe. And the way I would describe it is that there's this elephant on my chest. And I remember sitting down and talking to friends and family and even a therapist about it. But it took for me to start like looking into like there's racism and I'm feeling anxious because of racism. And it's like, oh, racial battle fatigue. Um, other ways in which it shows up for people, particularly men of color, is um, they are being incredibly tokenized, particularly if they are um, gifted and well-rounded in their work, but they're the only one. So they're feeling as though they have to kind of sh put on a show and there's this anxiety about being in the spotlight. But the other side of it is like, I'm successful. So there's this narrative to what it means to be successful, but then there's ex this great amount of exhaustion associated with having to be on all the time, particularly when I'm at work or if I'm in the community. Um, so anxiety, it's sometimes people get upset stomach and they're experiencing um, diarrhea or some people are like, I'm not even using the bathroom because my anxiety is so great. Um, tons of headaches. Some people manifest stress like in their jaws. So you begin to realize that your ears, your neck, you're um, you're clenching your teeth at night. You're not sleeping well. You're not be you're not really being able to get a full amount of rest, and you're feeling you're feeling a ton of isolation because you don't know what it is, but something seems to be off. And I think what also happens many times with racial battle fatigue is that you begin to internalize it, and you think something must be wrong with me. Something mm -hmm. must be really off with me. And most of the time when individuals come and see me, they're questioning the, what am I doing wrong for me not to be excelling in, um, excelling in this space? And we have to navigate some of the systemic issues associated with race. Mm. I think that's extremely helpful just because, you know, like you said, it's the, it's the feeling. And that's the thing we talk about a lot when it comes to like microaggressions and things like that. It's that feeling of like, I'm not sure if it was you know I don't know if that was an issue but it sounds like even with having racial battle fatigue it's kind of like the unknown of like I don't feel good but I have nothing to pinpoint it on and mm -hmm. so until you take a look at the environment and it's like oh well you deal with this on a daily basis or you're dealing with this a lot then then you can kind of say like this is part of what you may be struggling with absolutely and I think from a from an organizational structural perspective many times and particularly in working environments um like I've spent time working with like human resource directors and we'll talk about some of the issues associated with discrimination in the workplace. And if you cannot directly pinpoint that you've been discriminated against, it is really difficult to say file a, file a claim, file an EEO suit or um, file a lawsuit. So many times with when I'm working with executive leadership, I have to tell them that 
it may seem like they're one-off encounters that people of color or even women are dealing with, but they are collective one-off encounters. Mm-hmm. It's the comment about the hair. It's the, it's the, um, the private meeting that happened that said, you know, we're going to take you off of this account because we think someone else may be best suited for it. It's the, um, it's, it, it was an, it's a number of other things that contribute to one feeling so ill-equipped in the working environment. So I, many times I encourage HR units or um, executive leadership to take stock of the climate that's associated with their working environment because it's creating um, a fatigue for, for people. People are already contending with so many outside elements that, are, that they're bringing into the workspace. Um, so it, it begins to be really difficult to quantify, but it's real. It is not something that we're creating. There is not, it's not an illusion. That's the part that I think is so important and where I think our clients can really benefit from us as therapists affirming and validating this is because the word that just keeps coming up for me is just kind of being in this state of doubt Mm -hmm. in this, like doubting yourself, doubting the people around you, doubting the situation, doubting if you know what, you know, the, the term crazy making, right. Right. Where you're just kind of like, what is going on and is it me or, and so I just having this to be something that we are, informed on and can validate our clients just that alone I think about how um, helpful that can be and how it can benefit clients absolutely definitely Um, so what when dealing with racial battle fatigue what are some good self-care strategies or just tools that people can use to help them um, combat it um, I think there are, there are a number of things. While there are a number of things that are that could be a part of one self care strategy, I think the challenge many times is people even realizing what they're enduring. Right. So, um, being able to describe what you're feeling is going to is obviously going to be um, incredibly helpful because most of the time we're going to start looking at like this just seems like I'm anxious, right? And um, then the next question could be from a practitioner standpoint or from even from a friend or a family member. It, Someone maybe asked, well, what are you anxious about? And um, so being able to articulate what's going on in your world and what are some moments that are triggering, I think self-care consists of essentially you being able to articulate what you need, want, and desire. So creating a, a, an emotional vocabulary is going to be paramount to be able to describe what it is that you're feeling. And that's, that's a great way to just be, just actualize yourself, right? To say, this is what I'm feeling. Um, ways of self-care is also understanding that racism is pervasive and it's systemic and it's cultural. And not only is it systemic and cultural, it's also personal, it's interpersonal and intrapersonal. So it happens between people and it also happens within ourselves. But understanding that you have the power to resist the system that tells you you should be fill in the blank. You should be well-spoken, that you should be well-kept, that your hair should look a certain way. So ways in which you resist, um, it's going to be a way in which you Practicing radical self-love is a way to resist racist ideology and racist practices. So if that means my hair is big and curly, and I'm going to wear my hair big and curly today because it's a it's my liberation moment. Mm-hmm. It is surrounding yourself with um, with people and things that remind you of love, light, and affirmation. It is um, being able to talk to other people and release 
some of this negative, this negative energy that you may be carrying with you that's associated with the battle fatigue that you have to like maybe concern yourself with when you're at work or you feel coming on when you watch the news, when it says something about, you know, the president, the comments that he's made about people of color. Um, and also understanding where your moments are tension, your tension are like your, your triggering moments. Um, I was at an event last night and we were talking about, uh, you know, white people have to do their work to educate themselves on whiteness and what has been, been perpetuated over time against people of color and people of color have to do their healing work as well. And we don't have to wait on white people to say they're sorry, but we also have to be like, how do we build our, our resilience? How do we build our communities? How do we build our families in spite of what's happened? So, and then self-care could also look like taking a moment of rest. Um, if that's a bubble bath, a hot shower, surrounding yourself with friends, um, seeking therapy and guidance and um, practicing your affirmations. I think every now and then what's important, particularly if you're experiencing this tremendous amount of fatigue and you feel like it's being triggering, it's been triggered in a working environment, Take advantage of EAP. Maybe you can seek seek therapy through your job. And my my I'm a firm believer in if you are credentialed and skilled and if you got to this opportunity, I am sure that you'll get to another one. Mm. So if you need to say goodbye to that employment opportunity for the sake of your mental health, you have to you have to create an exit strategy so that you can begin to um, get away from that space. Because it's not your job. To, it is not your job to go around educating people on how their racy ideologies are impacting, impacting you. That's burdensome in its own right. So maybe you Absolutely. need to leave, surround yourself with people that are warm, caring, affectionate, full of light and, and take stock of what it is that you need, want and desire. That's so powerful. And I think that's one of the, the toughest parts too. I think um, when you are um, a person of color, it's like, knowing when to walk away and that yeah. it's actually in your benefit, you know, cause it's like, we, we get in that mode where it's like, no, you know, I'm show them or right. you know, you, you, we're constantly wanting to prove ourselves. And then to be able to say, you know what, this is, this is in my best interest to walk away. And that's, I think often the most difficult part. Yeah, definitely. absolutely. I agree. So you talked about therapy as a resource. Why do you think therapy is dope? <laughs> you know, uh, I think I think therapy is is dope because for me as a practitioner, I think that therapy allows people in that that one moment of solace to truly like dedicate their time and care to themselves. I think therapy also does a phenomenal job of like holding up the mirror to to you so that you see you and you see the potential potential of you um therapy is so dope because it has the power to heal and it's just you doing the work it is not contingent upon with my mother changes then this will happen for me or if my boyfriend changes this will happen for me therapy is this independent space where you get to sit down with a facilitator and you get to like layer like lay your burdens out so to speak and you also get to look at your potential and see like the humanity exists in all of this and who I am today can be dictated I'm sorry, who I am tomorrow can be dictated by behaviors that I began to practice today. And um, I think what makes therapy so amazing, though, is that it's liberating and it's so freaking affirming. 
affirming. Now it's an, it's an emotional, it's an emotionally laborious process, but the freedom that comes on the end is one like, Oh, I just ran a marathon. Like I had the power to get through this. Mm. Um, so I, yeah, I think that. I think that's probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite descriptions of why therapy is dope. <laughs> <laughs> that was so good. When I love what you said it holds up the mirror to to who we are and who we have the potential to be. I love that. Love it. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. Came up with it all myself. <laughs> I know you did. You are on fire this morning without your notes and everything. <laughs> exactly. So um, can you share some of your favorite resources, books, podcasts, or anything like that? Yes, absolutely. I am... Um, I am a podcast junkie. I feel like sometimes it's like, oh, tyranny, all these podcasts you listen to. But I think for the sake of like racial battle fatigue, I think it's important to maybe read works by um, people that remind you of you mm-hmm. and just knowing that they also have endured some of the same things. And so for me, reading Michelle Obama's Becoming was really, really helpful. You know, she, she spoke about stereotype threats. She spoke about spotlight anxiety, you know, which is essentially like being the only one and sometimes feeling as though you're not supposed to be there because you don't see anyone else around the table. She also spoke about the racial battle fatigue. Um, so I think reading about a person like her and it, it kind of like humanizes the experience because you're like, I'm experiencing it, but I'm like Michelle Obama experienced it too. Wow. Um, Cause we sometimes think that these people that are so great don't experience some of the same human things that we do. Right. But she spoke about it in her book and I found it so affirming. I recently read um, more than enough. Um, and there's like a subtitle to that too. I can't remember, but it's more than enough um, by Elaine Walter Roth, Walter Roth, who was the editor-in-chief of Vogue, Teen Vogue, and she also talked about this in her memoir, The Racial Battle Fatigue, and the and the, the labor that we as women, women of color, endure when we're trying to maneuver these spaces, and people are like questioning your humanity. Yeah. Um, I think that and, and because I'm a diversity practitioner and an administrator on a college level, I read a lot of articles about, you know, what the achievement gap and equity and all that other stuff. But then some of that stuff is just, it can just be very, very boring because <laughs> it can be very boring. But I, I appreciate those two works. And I also appreciate Bettina Love's new book, which is titled, We Want to Do More Than Survive. Mm-hmm. And it essentially talks about how we begin to, um, this language is very big, but this, this language is big, and I describe it because it's an emotional language, but it's, we begin to spirit murder children in, like, elementary school and saying what they can and cannot do because of their skin color and what and what communities they live in. So I think as adults, it's our job to lift up young people and also go back into ourselves and meet our younger selves and meet them with love and light because the spirit murdering is still happening and racial battle fatigue is sometimes our, the burden we care with trying to combat the spirit murdering that happens in our communities. So I, I love those three, those three pieces of work, Michelle Obama's Elaine Walter Roth and Bettina loves. Wow. That spirit. Love it. Yes. (laughs) That, that, yes. Yeah. That, that spirit murder piece is, is it's be it's real it's real yeah i'm sure so powerful yeah um last question tell us why you're a dope therapist i think i'm a dope therapist because um 
because of my my love for for the work that I do in, in as a college administrator and young people, I I meet them in this in this world of like understanding that like you have the power to change. Like evolution is is a beautiful process and it's going to happen and it's gonna and it's gonna happen for you. So like meet meet yourself with some empathy and light. Um, I think I'm a dope therapist because I do a lot of identity work, pretty much centered around race and ethnicity. Um, use use a lot of like William Cross, like black identity development model. Um, I use some, some other multicultural models in my counseling. And um, I think that like freedom and liberation really does begin with like us beginning to like find our worth and value. And so as a practitioner, I do a lot of like positive psychology, affirming work. And I just, I believe in the power of, like, I think society says so many things about what people of color can't do, what they won't do, and there's all these statistics that says otherwise. But, like, I just don't believe in that deficit model. Like, we are we are thriving. We are beautiful. We are success-oriented. We are familiar. Um, we are diasporic and are connected to it. And so I'm a dope therapist because I practice all of that, that personal-centered, identity-centered work in my, in my counseling. Awesome. Well, we certainly co-sign yes. <laughs> that you are indeed a dope therapist because Thank you. I, I, I'm just thinking about the, the the benefit of hearing these messages also so early on into, you know, our our lives and having college kids who you're 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 there, you're trying to find out who you are and your identity and all that great stuff. And to be able to have you on campus, helping <laughs> yes. guide the way you, we definitely co-sign your, your dope therapist title. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. I You're appreciate so that. Welcome. It's been a pleasure talking to you too. And you've been so amazing. Thank you for all the work that y'all do and continue the heart, continue you. Continue pushing forward, ladies. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. And yes. we'll make sure that we'll link all of the information so that you can keep in contact with Tyranny. You can find her at adult2cc.com, right? That's right. Adult2cc.com. You got it. And then across social media at Adult2 Counseling and Consulting. That's correct. Okay. We'll make sure to put that in the show notes. And thank you guys for listening. Follow us across social media at Melanin and Mental Health. Uh, Melanin Health on Twitter, and then check out melaninandmentalhealth.com to find a dope therapist, to find some dope gear, um, and to listen to our previous podcast. So that's all we have for today, and we will talk to y'all next time. Bye. 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 See you later.